Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome back to the newest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk. This time, again, as always, with my beautiful co-host, Carl Michael. Carl Michael, thanks for being here with me. Hi, Simon. Greetings from Berlin to Vienna. Thank you so much. And today we're discussing, I think, very hot and very relevant topic at the moment. We're talking about decentralized exchanges and decentralized finance. And of course, the regulation where FATF task force, Financial Action Task Force is putting out new guidelines. We're hearing a lot from different states. It seems like Portugal, Germany, France, uh, Austria and around the globe, every government and every uh, institution there in in every state is putting out different guidelines and different rules. And uh, it's hard to even know where we are at in decentralized finance. And for that very special occasion, we have a very special guest, Dr. Nina Luisa Siedler, partner at DWF Law Firm in Germany, joining us from Germany. Nina, thanks so much for being here with us tonight. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Great. So let's kick it off and maybe you tell us a bit about what really brought you to the blockchain space. Why are you passionate about fintech, crypto, digital assets? I think maybe maybe it's just a tech or fintech space, but there's often this meme around lawyers liking set in stone rules and being like in the old world. But of course, we've had many lawyers that proved this very much wrong in this podcast already. But what was your moment that really brought you to blockchain and made you become passionate about it? <laughs> yeah, that actually goes back to uh, 2015, where I was head of fintech at my previous firm. And I came across R3 Corda and started asking around. I'm located in Berlin, by the way. So this brought me quickly into the local Ethereum and Bitcoin scene. And I had a lot of fun during the initial talks with coders where they explained me their concepts of coders law and all these beautiful infrastructure designs they had in mind and were building on. One, one told me we're designing a system which can never ever erase any facts anymore and so forth. And uh, my lawyer's brain started thinking, wow, you know, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, that's not valid, and so forth. So there was a true culture clash in the beginning, but I think learned from each other. And in 2016, I started giving, you know, first uh, legal talks to, to coders. And the moment where I really, really got into this whole system was when recognized that there are very parallel design thinkings in how to establish systems for a crowd to function in a transparent, fair, and inclusive manner, which are all topics that I wrote about in my PhD thesis a long time ago, which had actually the topic of separation of powers in democracies. So that really brought me back to the two years I wrote this PhD and, and was thinking about exactly those topics. And that's also why I'm really fascinated in the like permissionless, decentralized part of the DLT story until today. You are a founding member of the German Blockchain Association, Blockchain Bundesverband. How did this materialize? <laughs> yeah, that was in, in early 2017 when the first people came up and say, yeah, you know, 
we we are talking to politicians and in the parliament and so forth all the time and everybody is looking at us oh that's interesting that's interesting yeah yeah we need to think about that but nothing is happening so we we got this advice in order to being actually heard you need to form like a verband bundesverband <laughs> when i first heard that recommendation i started laughing and said you know my my crypto anarchists they will do everything but not <laughs> Yeah. But actually, a couple of months later, we did. It was really nice. It was a fairly small crowd. I think we were about 25 or so, but it was very well managed. Um, it was in the building of the German parliament. We had representatives from all the main parties being there. We formed the political advisory body immediately. And yeah, I was heading the finance working group for a couple of years where we then published the, the first papers about financial regulation and uh, tokens, especially token issuances. Okay. Nina, uh, if there were only two cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum, what would be your choice? I think Ethereum. Although I must admit that I'm not a fan of the movement into proof of stake because this is not democratizing anything, but rather further on plutocratizing the, the the structure that's one of my you know main concerns everybody is talking about democratizing everything but actually you know tokens are not democratizing anything they are plutocratizing everything and i think that's an important topic to discuss and once we maybe have secure digital identities we might be able to actually form infrastructures which are democratized and not Plutocratized. This somehow also refers, not exactly, but slightly to the question of uh, centralized and decentralized entities in the crypto space. And since our topic today is kind of DeFi and DEX regulation, so decentralized exchange regulation, maybe we start with a very basic definition or clarification. How would you differentiate a decentralized exchange from a, a centralized uh, crypto exchange? I think the main uh, point to distinguish centralized from decentralized is always the question, is there anyone specific or a group of people in a position to influence the system? If you want to go further, you could say to control the system. But I think influence is more appropriate in, in this circumstance. Nobody really knows where the regulators across the globe will actually draw the line. But I think there are indicators which are more pointing towards one or the other side. For example, I think you can only claim being decentralized when you actually have your system running on a decentralized layer. So we distinguish between different layers if the system at hand is actually built in that way. But typically, if you think of Ethereum, Ethereum itself might be decentralized, but the smart contracts running on, on top of it, providing for the exchange servers, might not. So you actually need to take a deeper look into the whole thing and only the mere fact that it's built upon a public permissionless and truly decentralized chain does not necessarily mean 
that the service itself is also decentralized. So that's one thing. Then there are other points to consider. For example, if the system is decentralized as such, but it can be influenced through a voting mechanism, through the holders of the native tokens, in that case, you also need to establish if there is anyone singly or a group collaborating, holding the majority of those tokens, because in that case, clearly they can influence the structure and the services. You could even argue beyond that because experience shows that there are never really all token holders using their tokens to vote. So realistically, you should maybe take a look at you know, how many token holders got actually involved, historically speaking, and ask for the like 50% of the typical tokens getting actually involved in, in votings and so forth. So there are various angles under which you need to analyze if a system is truly decentralized. And, you know, it's very clear, regulators will always try to come up with an argument saying that there is actually a provider for that service, a centralized provider for that service. Okay, then I think so. Coinbase, Binance, ETC, that are clearly uh, centralized exchanges. They are an mm -hmm. intermediary. Yeah. But how about Uniswap, which is normally called decentralized exchange? Would it fulfill your criteria for decentralization? Actually, I never analyzed uh, Uniswap. So maybe you can answer the question. Do you mm -hmm. see, you know, how is, how is the, the token has been distributed? Is it, was it all via airdrop or something? But I or are there groups which retained like a large number of tokens, typically the founders or do you mm, happen to? I don't know uh, exactly. I would say the governance at least is uh, more towards the democratic side, if I follow your definition. How it was with the airdrops, I, I don't know exactly, honestly speaking. But I see, okay, so it's a case-by-case -case judgment and that, that might be quite, quite tricky in, in different cases, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you really need to dig deep, right? You really need to understand how the governance is working and main players retaining like a large portion of the tokens if the governance is decentralized in a DAO-like way, for example. And it can change over time, right? So in the beginning, there might be the initial team having set up the whole structure who still are holding more than like 50% of the, the native token over time that may become less. And then due to the like staking structures, ETC, which typically also result again in accumulation of large tokens in the hands of very few people, it might be centralized again at some point later in time. There's recent, and Simon mentioned this already, guidance from the Financial Action Task Force on, on virtual assets. And Germany, I think even before these guidance was finally made public, implemented in October 1st already some of the, the regulations. I think in the end, if you look at these guidelines, it's also not easy to differentiate, really to draw the line between an entity which is uh, centralized or decentralized, because it says somehow that uh, any platform which have a natural or if not a legal person who somehow controls or influences the activities, and that's a wide definition of the, of the platform, might fall under the travel rule regulation. Can you elaborate a little bit on the criticality and uh, what these travel regulations would mean? So if you are 
falling as a DeFi operator than under the virtual uh, asset uh, service provider definition. Yeah, maybe maybe a small step back. So that's exactly the critical point. If there is a central provider of that service, that provider will be a virtual asset service provider, as FATF is calling it, and therefore be captured by the more or less traditional financial uh, services regulation. And that requires not only to identify and to a certain extent verify the identity of your own customer as service provider, but also of the, the beneficiary of a transaction. So if your customer asks you to transfer a virtual asset to uh, customer B of virtual asset service provider B, then you do not only need to have identified and verified the identity of your own customer, but you also need to know the beneficiary's name and account number because you need to send that information along to the other virtual asset service provider of the beneficiary of that transaction. And that causes issues because obviously the way how DLT systems are designed, there is no uh, messaging uh, system attached to it, right? You simply pass tokens. So that messaging system is now being built in addition and parallel to like the, the traditional DLT transaction structures. And plus, if you are a regulated virtual asset service provider, you also need to do some due diligence on the virtual asset service provider of the beneficiary, right? That's what it starts with. And then think about, you know, only a, a small number of countries has already established the travel rule in their national legislation, FATF is not a legislator, right? They they put together recommendations for the national legislators, which then those need to implement in the national rules. We did this already, as you mentioned, in, in Germany, and other countries might not have done that yet. So the, the difficulties for our local virtual asset service providers is then can we actually permit transactions to virtual asset service providers which do not need to comply with those FAT regulations by now? It's really, really difficult. And that's why I'm saying for years now, what's being built is basically a Chinese wall between what I like to call like the black crypto world and the white crypto world. The white crypto world is where everybody is identified and monitored. And the black crypto world is the decentralized peer-to-peer -peer transaction side of things, unhosted wallets. And it's, it's made really, really difficult for regulated service providers to transact with like that black side of, of blockchain, which I think is really unfortunate because there are good reasons for building these systems to protect privacy and so forth. And I think we need to discuss more in detail how we can reach the goals of both types of regulation, anti-money laundry protection versus privacy protection. I think the comparison with the Chinese wall and black and white, we could maybe also uh, go a step further and call it like the difference between 
the free crypto and the permissioned or permitted crypto world, maybe. If we think this a bit further ahead and the only people that can really comply with this or can try to comply with because the only people that these guidelines and later on the laws could be enforced upon are centralized providers. If we look at completely decentralized exchanges like FTX or um, SushiSwap or the likes, or even like Arbitrum or Optimism, the new layer two networks, then of course there's no one that you can hold accountable. So therefore they can just keep operating. On the other hand side, if local German or Austrian or wherever we are looking at uh, centralized crypto service providers like exchanges want to fully comply, then how are they even going going to be able to let you withdraw your funds to, uh, for example, a MetaMask wallet, where again, there's like no one sitting there that can confirm the identity that can receive your message or that stuff, or like another normal, more decentralized wallet. uh, That's just an address that someone set up. So that's exactly the point, right? Uh, And nobody really has the answer uh, to that yet. But you could think about permit the customers of a regulated exchange to withdraw funds to their own MetaMask wallet, right? And they could prove that they actually have control over that MetaMask wallet by, for example, sending back and forth like a mini portion of, you know, any given token just to show, yeah, I do control this. So that's maybe one solution. But actually, the problematic thing is that the FATF recommendations expressly declare that the like uncontrolled world, <laughs> the black side of blockchain, is a true threat, specifically once it reached mass adoption. So, and they go even so far that they say when there is no other way to get this under control, the national jurisdictions should simply think about prohibiting the use of those systems completely. So, yeah, I think there is a need for discussion here, obviously, because what is seen as a good thing from the privacy regulation perspective, and we are all moving towards sovereign self-identity and and these topics supporting the control of the individuals about their data. And this goes really, really to the opposite uh, of of that aim, what we're seeing happening currently in the AML space. Now, what we've seen over the past couple of years, I think, is that enforcing these, for example, outright bans is almost impossible, where countries that have where the citizens have suffered the most from willy-nilly financial or monetary policy like in turkey for example um, transactions have been outruled outlawed and uh, there's clear communication from the top from the government that this is not supposed to be used and still adoption is at at the peak Um, everyone's trying to flee the local currencies argentina south america southeast asia china in all these countries, crypto really flourishes. It's uh, it's amazing to see the adoptions in those places, even in China. How likely do you think it is that, for example, European governments going into this that blue-eyed that they might just outlaw something where they know it won't do anything, it won't happen, it's, um, people will keep using it, they will just lock out all of the industry and all of the potential tax revenue? I'm afraid they are not fearing losing tax income because... What we're we, we are trying to educate politicians and regulators for years that the way of regulating crypto in Germany is really nearly prohibitive by now. 
And towards the end of this calendar year specifically, we see a, a huge movement of crypto specialists leaving the country and, and moving abroad. But that really yeah, had never been a convincing argument to take a differing view. I think it's maybe also driven by the lack of idea how to do it better, how to actually reach the goals in this case to prevent money laundering and terrorist financing in a different way. And that's also partly due to the fact that we as crypto community never really came up with good proposals. So I think we really need to work to collaborate better as we did so far. And we need to come up with proper suggestions. For example, what is a structure for a network, a decentralized structure, which everyone agrees is useful and is like of value for society as a whole and is supported also by our regulation. We never came up with such a proposal so far. And it was, for example, one of the goals when we formed INATVA, the International Association for Trusted Blockchain Applications, upon initiative of the European Commission. It was right from the beginning, that was one goal, right? To develop standards for precisely this. And so far, you know, we, we still lack a proposal which is easy to communicate and to be understood by people maybe not so deeply into the technology. And we, on our end, need to do better. Do you think this is yes, the duty of the crypto community or the duty of the regulator to provide, I would say, these kind of, that might be even legal definitions you are talking about here, right? Not only, not only, but in the beginning, the mere agreement on what is useful for the society. And I'm a very great fan of decentralization, also beyond blockchain, maybe due to my history. I was in 2003, I lived in New York. So I was there uh, during the great blackout. And it was a really yeah interesting experience to having been in, in that huge city and not being able To, to talk and to meet those people that I would like to see. So you would walk down the streets, everything was shut down with randomly people around you and you had no chance to actually communicate with those. So that's also was one experience where I really thought, wow, you know, energy supply must be decentralized, right? That's really dangerous for the whole society if that is provided only by centralized players. And we see this decentralization movement also in, in other industries. Think of 3D printing and so forth. It's like the wave back after we had like a decade of monopolization around us. But we need to start to talk about what type of decentralized blockchain infrastructure is what we need as a society. How does this need to be designed? And we need to convince, you know, that the decentralization, that's the true key element which has a value which other systems do not have. And when is something actually decentralized enough to reach that value? Is it hundreds of nodes? Is it thousands? Is it, you know, how, how must the design look like? Now, do you think 
this is a discussion we can actually have in Germany. For example, the idea of how can the banking system, the financial system, the simple way of how we exchange value, how I pay my employees, how my employees pay their rents, how taxes are paid, how bookkeeping is done, how accounting is done, how all of this is looked at it without the sunk cost fallacy attached to millions of employees in the banking and financial sector, of course. And um, yeah, maybe even politicians seeing it as their authority being questioned when the financial system is not under direct control of more or less um, through uh, central bank policy, which again is politically motivated. Um, is this a discussion we can even have? Do we need banking? Do we need finance? I mean, in crypto, the consensus is very, very clear. No, it's inadequate. Um, nothing works really if you look at it uh, from a clear point of view and you look at it from today, 2021, and not from the 1890s or something when many banks uh, and many of the foundations were set up. But it feels very hard to communicate this to. And I talk to bankers quite frequently, especially in Austria, who are like very conservative. It's almost impossible from my point of view to get the point across that it's simply inadequate, the entire system. And I sometimes make the analogy of it's a bit like tobacco, the tobacco industry. There's there's so much better alternatives and or maybe oil. The question is how much damage does it do to, do to the planet and how many how much of a sunk cost is there if we just throw it all out, which seems almost impossible. I think the step is too big that you're asking for. I would like to start to discuss merely the, the question subject to which requirements are the regulators and politicians willing to accept that there is no single service provider anymore. And we will start with some Bafin inquiries, I think early, hopefully early next year, where we address exactly that topic for the first time and, and hopefully, you know, push that this discussion now starts. I wouldn't immediately start discussing with them that this could mean that we don't need the banks anymore. That's maybe a, a, a jump which is too huge to expect. So let's break it down, right? Let's try to come to an agreement first that a decentralized system, if it is, you know, a banking-like service or not, if it's a cryptocurrency or maybe rather, I don't know, some, some use case in the beginning, when do we actually agree that there is no single service provider anymore. And then we, we need to try to prevent the US, which actually is a driver behind the FATF recommendation, specifically in the crypto space, to finally come to the conclusion that they need to make coding a licensed industry because that's looming already for a couple of years that if there is no other way to get this under control, then maybe a software development could become yeah, a, a licensed profession in its own. I mean, we already had this, right? Um, that's where the entire cypherpunk movement started, where the US tried to make cryptography a very heavily regulated industry. And very fortunately for all of us here today, of course, um, they were not successful. It was protected under freedom of speech. And let's hope that it stays this way. But I think this beautifully leads us to the next question. Now, many DeFi projects, especially, they don't feel the need to really care even anymore about regulators. First of all, because and I'm just talking from my experience in the in the space, 
they feel like they do things now that the regulators will talk about maybe next year, maybe in two years, and they will start doing something about it maybe three or four years, and then maybe five or six years something, some rules will come up. Whereas no one cares in the DeFi industry anymore about what we did this year, for example. And on the other hand side, of course, they can always just move. So if, if even if the entire Western world, let's say under the American Washington consensus in the financial industry says Bitcoin, Ethereum, all of this stuff needs to be banned because it's a threat to central bank monopolies, to monetary policy, to a financial system, all of that stuff. It doesn't really matter anymore. Whereas, yeah, they could ban people accepting those things as payment. But there's a whole world out there that's hardly banked or that has a very big interest in the Washington consensus ending and the Americans losing their huge influence on the financial world. Where I remember back in 2018, I was talking to a, a Thai princess from the um, Thai royal house where she made it very clear that her interest is to ending this US dominance. And DeFi can just move. So many projects are, of course, moving into DAOs and then trying to become completely decentralized. Now, is this a feasible way in your point of view to get out of the upcoming regulation? Or do you think there's actually better ways where they can still operate well enough and provide services that are as amazing as they are today? Like just try to use some DeFi protocols like Curve or Barnbridge or like Go in Layer 2. All of this stuff has nothing to do with the terrible, terrible things and costs we have in banking. But it seems like if you go with FATF guidelines, you will not be able to provide a proper service. But what do you think is a good way for actual DeFi projects to go? I always recommend to all of our clients, don't try to hide, right? We need to go into this discussion in order to create legal security for them and in order to enhance education on the other side of the desk. So I would always recommend show your face, present your project and discuss it. We, we can only come to conclusions together. And I think, you know, the current way the anti-money laundry monitoring is designed is completely out fashioned. There are m many other ways to, I believe, to better reach the goal of preventing as much money laundering as possible than the one that is used right now. And that will come into play when we actually talk to regulators and politicians and convince them that they completely need to update uh, their systems. Currently, the way this monitoring is organized, it's basically an outsourcing of, of a task of the states And the states with their ministries of finance, they don't feel capable of fulfilling that task anymore. And that's why they outsourced it to the private financial industry. That doesn't really make sense anymore when we use a technology which permits like detailed analysis of transactions on a technology basis. We might not even like the result in the end, I would also like to add because that uh, makes us really transparent. And I don't really like the idea that the state is actually observing each and every transfer that I undertake. So there's also a kind of a risk involved in suggesting that switch. But I think ultimately it will happen. So let's proactively 
discuss these topics and let's try to design the future regulatory rules in a way which balance privacy rights against money laundry and terrorist financing prevention. We already have that in the traditional banking uh, industry, right? Where basically every credit card payment you make goes um, through the US at some point. It goes um, through the IRS. There was um, this huge discussion, especially in Austria, um, when Austria was the last country in Europe actually to sign the agreement that each uh, financial transaction through Visa, MasterCard and so on would go through the US. But at some point, they also faltered and signed it. So if we get to that point, I think because, of course, the FATF, the IRS and all those institutions would be happy. But we would be at the same point as we are with the, as you said, completely uh, transparent, 100% transparent citizen where the government, especially the um, tax offices, know absolutely everything. Yeah, that's right. And, and But we now have the chance to maybe redesign all of this. The only space where the, you still have true anonymity is using cash, right? And that's why all the states try to push back on cash, on the use of cash. But yeah, so you, you're right. Uh, maybe I, I shouldn't even fear that things get worse when the regulators switch to using like blockchain DLT analytics uh, firms and systems in, instead of this, you know, monitoring through the private financial services industry. Yeah. Maybe. We're talking now about a, a better vision of how regulation could look like. But let's be honest, if we look at a reality and if we take the travel rule guidelines and their, let's say, super fast implementation in Germany, it, doesn't it move in the exactly opposite direction? It seems that all the traditional finance rules and regulations are more or less becoming imposed on DeFi. Or, or do you think there is a there's some light at the end of the tunnel or that there is an opportunity that in the end or more or less progressive pragmatism will prevail? There are only two options. One option is that everybody goes on moving into the direction that you just described. You know, that the traditional rules will simply be imposed on the new world, uh, so to speak. And that's what we, that's absolutely right. We see happening specifically here in Germany, where they simply said more or less, you know, the uh, information requirements of payment service providers are now also to be fulfilled by crypto asset service providers no matter whether the technology uh, provides for that option or not. Or we as a community keep on talking, keep on, or maybe for the first time, really come up with precise suggestions how to do better. And then we maybe have the chance to see something being adopted, which seems more adequate for the new technology at hand. But it's, and, and you asked me this earlier, Is it an obligation of the crypto community to come up with suggestion or maybe rather the regulators ones? Yeah, you're right. It might be the obligation of the regulators to come up with, you know, the best proposals that one could think of. But in fact, they don't do right. They think and breathe and live the current system. And if we want change, then it must come from us, from the crypto community. I, I agree with this, but let me play another round of devil's advocate here. So if this, let's say, 
old traditional financial system is really fully imposed on the DeFi world. So we know we have to store, we have to collect, we have to verify name and addresses of non-custodial beneficiaries and originators. And, and companies, if we follow the German regulation, must comply to this within 12 months at least. So it's a harsh timeline, knowing that no technical system, which you already mentioned in the beginning, is available for this. Is it really realistic to enforce this regulation in this 12-month period of time? Is it realistic at all because there are no national boundaries relevant here anymore? Is it How would this go uh, uh, in the end? Would this kill myriads of, of DeFi projects in Germany? Or is it simply that the regulator just wants to have the possibility to intervene but already knows that it is almost impossible to, to really intervene in all or in the majority of all cases. Yeah, that addresses the problem that the technology works on a global basis. While law is already decentralized, and I personally really like that law is decentralized, each jurisdiction has the right to set the rules concerning its jurisdictions, you know, in widely their own discretion. And that leads to the fact that every state has its own laws. And yeah, there is this problem that this technology doesn't respect geographic boundaries. However, each jurisdiction has set rules subject to which they they are of the opinion that somebody actually approaches their market And that's when the local regulation kicks in. Hence, what I want to say is, if there is a, a project a, which aimed to provide a decentralized service, but which might not have been come to an agreement with a regulator that it is accepted as sufficiently decentralized with no centralized service provider being in place anymore, then they should be very cautious not to approach that market. And yeah, so the rules might differ from country to country. You know, some countries are stricter than others. US, for example, is very strict. While we still try to figure out whether Germany had been approached, like the German geographic region has been approached. And if that is the case, then the regulators will try to prevent that and to go after if there is still sufficient control exercise by any group to go after that that group. And yeah, that's simply the fact. And, and I think you can always argue, you know, we can hide, we can run away, but that's not actually where we want to get to. We will never get to mass adoption if we don't get this right. Because the, the mass out there will never be capable of using these instruments without support. The most people out there will still need a service provider to support them using these systems. So we actually running away and hiding doesn't help. That's my personal opinion. I think that's a very nice point. And it is a good idea, I believe, that nearing the end of our talk, that we turn it around and make a bit of a make a bit of an attempt to pitch Germany and maybe Europe as a location that can still develop in the right direction, where we can still have innovation, we can have new things, where we're not that stuck in our old ways, as especially from China, we often, I often hear that nothing new is happening here. We had our glory days behind us. I don't, I don't think so at all. I think we can still go there and 
yeah, get ahead of the pack. We do Now, live in a democracy, right? Yeah. So if we don't convince the regulators and politicians right away, let's get out there, educate the people on the streets. And at some point, we will be the majority and, and we'll get it right. It's up to us. I, I really like that. I really like that point of view. Uh, now, maybe for our golden question today um, that I'm asking to you, what would be your elevator pitch for developers, uh, for Solidity devs, for DEX operators or for DEX projects to operate in Europe and especially in Germany? What would you tell a project that's thinking about leaving or a project that's thinking about where to set up, set up shop in Europe? I'm actually asked that question on a very regular basis. And unfortunately, I cannot really advertise for opening like your venture in, in Germany or for operating out of Germany. Germany is really not very welcoming, but Berlin is a great city to live in. And there are other regions which are great as well. But, you know, I'm living in Berlin and I'm a huge fan. We have a great community here. I think, you know, it's a great environment to live with your family here. And that's actually, in the end, the most decisive point, because the, the, the regulatory laws will apply for all the markets that you want to actively approach. And Germany is a very, very attractive market for crypto stuff. And only maybe tax considerations could bring you abroad because then you can avoid maybe German taxes. But on the other hand, the reason why it's it's really nice to live in a secure environment with a very proper health system and, and so forth is requiring also to pay taxes. So I always tend to say, if you want to have all these advantages, then Don't try to hide away and to move taxes uh, elsewhere where it might be a bit cheaper. Think about where you want to live and then try to cope with the legal tax and regulatory environment there. All right. Thank you so much, Nina. Now, maybe if you have something you want to ask us, or if there's a final point you would like to make, the stage is all yours. Yeah, come up with ideas how we can actually create a fund and fund a proper decentralized focus crypto research institution, which could then come up with proposals, how to regulate better, right? Not only saying this doesn't work, you know, this will just uh, push everybody to foreign regions, but actually develop proper proposals, which we can then communicate. That's for years. I, I truly see a, a lack um, of research, proper research, and then building proposals done in that direction. Because all the associations out there, Bundesverband, INATBA, and so forth, they live from the like volunteer contributions of their members. That is not sufficient. We need to professionalize that. Absolutely agree. Now, could this be a DAO with its own token and an airdrop for everyone who participates? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying. You know, hopefully there will be very quickly the chance to discuss these structures with at least the German regulators. And let's see if we can come to an agreement what requirements there are for a DAO to be accepted, not as a service regulated service provider anymore, but as an infrastructure, which as such is not regulated. But isn't this in the end a call for a lobbying 
uh, organization no, backed by no, research? No. Or, we've got yeah. we've got we've got sufficient lobbying organizations like Bundesblock and, and also yeah, Inatba is not really a lobby organization. However, you know we need to accept that it will cost something to build this up. You need to pay researchers. And, and, and people coming up with proposals because all this pro bono activity is simply not sufficient for coming up with really complex topics like these. I'm doing this for years now and I was very active in these lobby associations. But all of us, we need to all make a living so we can only put in a bit time here and there. And that is not developing fast enough to really influence what's going on on the regulatory side now. We need a professional, we need a true institute for that. Do you think of this kind of research organization which has a kernel or whatever, a basis in Germany, or do you think of a European-wide body? Because if you look at Mika regulation, all this kind of regulation seems to be harmonized, at least in the EU, and that's a big advantage, yeah. I think, against... Uh, the US, like the thousands of, of uh, regulators who are involved normally, and nobody knows who is responsible for what. So that could be a big advantage for a DeFi project to stay to stay in Europe if, if, if such a, a body would be there and then there's a kind of harmonized uh, regulation. Yeah. Absolutely. There is, you know, doing things on a national level doesn't really make any sense in this area. So we need to think at least on the European level or take a look at FATF. That's a, a global body. Right. So ideally, in, in an ideal world, that research institute would aim to come up with model laws on, on a global basis. And we do have, for example, institutions like UNIDROIT, where I'm also in a working group on digital assets, which aims to build or to propose a model law for the private law topics like ownership. How do I transfer ownership? Is there an acquisition in good face, any kind of protection of innocent acquirer and so forth? So maybe, yeah. A, an, an I mean, we're all dealing like in DeFi and I feel like we've learned so much about proper governance, setting up DAOs, setting up incentive mechanisms over really, I, want, I would like to say over the past couple of years, but it's honestly been like the past year that we've learned how to set these things up. And why don't we set up a Discord and... Let's have an open call to our listeners and to the community. If you're interested in this kind of project, join the Discord. If you've made it to the end of this call, I think you're probably qualified anyways to join and contribute. <laughs> and let's make something happen instead of keeping the talk going. Let's keep the talk going, but also make something happen. And yeah. Let's make it very clear that there will be incentive mechanisms we set it up properly. Perfect. Let's do it. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Also, thank you very much to all our listeners and um, stay hungry, stay humble, stay loyal and stay tuned to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise. Mm -hmm.